Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our oceans. My name is John Sherburn, and I'm the show's producer. The Blue Earth Podcast is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on developing ocean ambassadors and future leaders. You can find us on social media at Future Frogmen and at futurefrogmen.org. Our host and president is Richard Hyman. Thank you, and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. Hi, Richard Hyman here. I'd like to welcome Steve Gephardt. Steve is the supervising fisheries biologist focused on diadromous fisheries and habitat conservation and enhancement programs for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Steve, it's, uh, it's great to see you again. Uh, we met a few months ago, really enjoyed getting to know you and, and learning about the work you're doing and would like to hear more today. Our, our operation is, is predominantly field work. There's so much work uh, to do monitoring the fish runs of Connecticut and making sure that all the migrations are going well at fishways and things. So uh, there's been plenty of us to do even as we're sort of social distancing ourselves. Yeah, so out in the field, you're you're working with other people in the field, but you have to be aware of uh, the social distance. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we have our own um, field work protocols. For example, there are some jobs in which we need three or p- four people on the site to help us do these jobs. Everybody has to drive to the site in a separate vehicle. <laughs> we're not ride sharing. When we're Working close together, we're wearing masks and gloves, and for most things, we're staying six feet apart. I mean, most of the work we're doing allows that. On occasion, if we have to get closer, we, we have the masks and gloves, and we limit that time to very brief moments. Yeah. And you were just telling me that you've gone through sort of a busy season, and now you're transitioning to a different part of the season? Yeah, in some sense... All seasons are busy. It's just that we do different kinds of things. But the spring is really our focal point because we're all about diadromous fish runs. These are the the migratory species that go back and forth between the ocean and fresh water to spawn. And those runs of fish um, are predictable uh, annual, and they always happen in the spring. Uh, usually our hot period is from March until mid-June. And during those times, we're out there doing everything we can to um, expedite their expedition, their, I meant to say uh, their migration, by making sure the fishways are operating correctly, monitoring the runs, collecting data, in some cases doing research. All of this has to happen in this short period of time when the fish are running. So yes, it's been a it's been a very busy spring for us. It's been an early spring because of the weather. It started earlier and frankly, it's ending a little bit earlier than normal as well. So when you talk about the fishways, you're talking about fish ladders, which similar. Yeah, uh, the fish ladder is sort of an old fashioned term. Uh, it refers mostly to the old style that we developed for Pacific salmon on the West Coast where fish jump from pool to pool and it sort of in a, in a crude sense resembled a ladder. But now 
there are so many different styles of devices meant to get fish around dams. You have uh, fish elevators, you have the old-fashioned fish ladders, you have uh, nature-like fishways made out of rocks and logs. There's all sorts of different kinds of designs and so we we refer to them generically as fishways, which includes all of the different designs. Yeah, and as you approach the migration season, one of your priorities is to make sure they're all operational. Yeah, well, a lot of them we shut down, most of them we shut down during the winter. And during the winter, there can be damage to them and floods can deposit logs and mud inside of them and things like that. And so when springtime arrives, we need to make sure that all of these are in good shape and, and, and we have to open them. And so the process, we, and we have about 65 fishways in the state of Connecticut. We're not responsible for all of them, but we are responsible for most of them. And so the first thing we do is we visit them and assess their condition, make sure nothing horrible happened to them over the winter. We clear out debris, um, notify landowners and other partners as necessary, and then finally we open up. And, and sometimes we, we collect data from some of the fishways. And so that involves either installing an electronic fish counter or a video camera. Some of them have underground windows in them. And so when we fill up the fishway, the water goes past this window. And when the fish start arriving, they swim past the window and we can take their picture. And using this video software, we can identify the fish to species and then compile data so that at the end of the year, we know how many shad went past, how many alewives went past, how many um, sea lampreys went past. All of this data is really important, not only to monitor the pace of the um, restoration in that particular watershed, but also to make sure that the fishway is operating properly. Yeah, now Steve, what's your assessment of uh, the condition overall? Have you seen an increase in in the last uh, five to ten years, or wh what, what's your what's your view? That's a complicated um, question, and uh, there's no easy answer because what happens is sometimes different species are on different trajectories. So some species are doing better than others, and some of the benefits are localized. For example, when we build a fishway at a dam for the first time, and by the way, that dam may be 250 years old. So when the fish first start coming up, it's the first time in 250 years, some of these fish have been up in that habitat upstream of the dam. And we do see increases um, when we start collecting data, you know, the first few years, maybe we're only getting a few dozen, and then, in, you know, five years later, we're getting a couple of hundred, and then maybe um, 10 or 12 years later, we're getting a couple of thousand. So yes, it builds up and we see those benefits. But overall, the state of a lot of the fish, particularly the two river herring species, alewife and blueback herring, haven't been doing all that well because of things going on out in the ocean. 
you know, the one thing about these diadromous fish is they rely on good habitat and good conditions in both freshwater and in saltwater. And we have a lot of ability to improve things in freshwater. We can remove dams, we can build fishways, we can stop pollution, we can tell people they can't catch and keep certain species of fish to conserve the run. But our ability to limit, to affect change out in the ocean is, is really limited. And so, um, for example, there's been a fishery off the east coast, I should say the east end of Long Island Sound in federal waters in Rhode Island and New York for many years that have been targeting a species called Atlantic herring. These Atlantic herring are not diadromous. They do not come into freshwater. But our river herring, our alewives and blueback herring, when they're at sea, they sort of hang out with these Atlantic herring. They belong to the same family and they're very similar fish and, and they school together. And so when these nets were catching uh, the, the Atlantic herring, which at the time had a pretty healthy population, there was nothing wrong with netting Atlantic herring. They were netting some of the alewives and blueback herring at the same time. That's called bycatch, um, an unavoidable uh, or unintentional catch of fish. And those fish stocks are not in good shape. And so we have been arguing um, to shut down this fishery or somehow modify it. And it finally happened this spring, and we think we did get a, a bounce this year. We think we got more of the river herring coming into our Connecticut streams because that fishery was shut down. Now we need a little bit more time to analyze the data, and we need a, a few more years to confirm that we've got a recovery going on. But this is just one example of why it's sort of difficult to answer your question because yes, things are going well in some regards, but we still have conservation concerns elsewhere. We worked for 40 years to try to restore a native run of Atlantic salmon back to the Connecticut River. And, um, and, and that's a really long, complicated, but very interesting story because they were totally gone from the Connecticut River since the War of 1812. And we brought in salmon from Maine and we worked with them for many years and we had hundreds coming back and it was all very exciting. But at the end of the day, uh, the effort failed and the federal government backed out of the program. Um, Hurricane Irene destroyed one of their salmon hatcheries and budgets were being cut in Washington and we finally had to give up. Now, having said all of that, while the other con three Connecticut River states left the program and the program closed down, the state of Connecticut decided it did not want to get completely out of the Atlantic salmon business. And so we created what we called the legacy program. And the legacy program does not seek to restore a self-sustained run of Atlantic salmon, wild salmon anymore, but it does seek to keep salmon in our waters for educational purposes, for research purposes, for, for historical cultural reasons. This, is, this fish used to be as important to Connecticut as lobster was to Maine. And we just hate to see 
Connecticut with no salmon. And so we're stocking a, a, a fairly modest amount of salmon fry in the Farmington River and the Salmon River each year. Both of those high quality tributaries flow into the Connecticut River. And so we have year round populations of juvenile salmon um, there and uh, every once in a while an adult will come back and it's exciting and it's worthwhile. But you know, this river used to have 40,000 Atlantic salmon coming back to it. Now we're lucky if we get one or two. And so again, it's not a true restoration program but we think it's worthwhile. And part of the education aspect of it is we have a program in cooperation with the Connecticut River Salmon Association called Salmon in Schools. And as part of that pro program, we provide 200 fertilized salmon eggs to participating schools. And we've got about 60 participating schools throughout the state. And they take these eggs and they put them in special refrigerated aquaria and they incubate these eggs throughout the winter. And when they hatch, they stock them in either the Farmington or Salmon River into the good juvenile salmon habitat. Now, these few fry that they're putting in the river is not, are not going to make a big difference in terms of the number of salmon coming back, but it's a great educational tool for young students to learn about fish, to learn about rivers, to learn about cold-blooded animals and how eggs develop and, and conservation and all sorts of great things. And, and the program has a number of really talented teachers who are able to create their own curriculum and each school sort of comes at this salmon in schools program a little bit differently. We even had a, a Spanish teacher participate in it and she was teaching her kids Spanish while learning about salmon. So it's, we, we just never want the people of Connecticut to forget about Atlantic salmon, know what we lost, and if nothing else, Make sure it doesn't happen to another species of migratory mm. fish. You have uh, a love for the migratory fish, don't you? I do. It's, um, I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm a river rat. I, I grew up on the Connecticut River, and um, the migratory fish always captured my imagination. I mean, I, I like all fish and wildlife. I love the natural world, but the migratory fish holds a special place in my heart. Um, I find them fascinating and there's no, you never stop learning about them. There's always more to learn and always more to be fascinated about them. Yeah, it is quite quite fascinating, the, the migration. The, uh, the herring and, and the salmon and, and other diadromous fish, they are going not only into the sound, but they're going into the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, that's right. You know, the, every species have its own unique migration pattern, and, and so um, everyone is different. Just to give you a couple of examples, with the Atlantic salmon, when they leave the Connecticut River, they travel 3,000 miles north to the Davis Straits off of Greenland, where they feed. 
And then when it's time for them to spawn, they turn around and travel those same 3,000 miles back along the coast of northern New England to get back to Long Island Sound in the Connecticut River. The American shad, when they, when they leave the Connecticut River, they go up to the Bay of Fundy, they'll feed there for a while, and then they go offshore and head south and actually come into shore around northern Florida. And they engage in this clockwise migration from Florida to New Brunswick, to Florida to New Brunswick, from Florida to New Brunswick every year until they're old enough to come back to spawn. And then when they do that during that, that cycle, they peel off to their home river. So fish from the St. John's River in Florida, in January, they go into that river to spawn. Fish from the Cape Fear River in North Carolina peel off in March to go off and spawn. Um, and this continues through the Chesapeake to the Hudson River. And then finally, when they get to Connecticut in, in usually mid-April, uh, the water is warmed off and our fish peel off to come into spawn. And then there's um, the American eel that has the exactly opposite lifestyle. They're not anadromous, they're cutadromous, and they spawn out in the Sargasso Sea. And in February, the little guys, the real tiny little glass eels, are crowding along our shoreline and finding fresh water and coming up to live, grow, feed, and maybe some of the female eels will stay in Connecticut in the headwater in some of our big lakes for 20 years before they go back out to the Sargasso Sea, which is in the middle of the Atlantic. So yeah, if every species has evolved their unique migratory pattern to not only deliver them to appropriate feeding grounds out into the Atlantic Ocean, but also to deliver them to appropriate spawning habitat, um, in, in the anadromous case, in, in our freshwater lakes, rivers, and, and ponds. And so these migrations have evolved over um, thousands and thousands of years and have been influenced by glaciers and all sorts of geologic events. And, you know, the, the shad in the Connecticut River that we see this year have probably been going up there for, you know, certainly the last 18,000 years since the last glacier and their offsprings from those first ones. So it's just a amazing uh, legacy of these ancient migrations. Yeah, I can see why you uh, have been captivated for your, throughout your career. So let's talk about uh, your career. You're currently with Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. You're supervising fisheries biologist, and you're also uh, working on the Habitat Conservation and Enhancement Program. You supervise that. Yeah, so um, our agency, which we um, abbreviate as DEEP or DEEP, um, it has a number of, of divisions within it. And um, there's a forestry division, and there's a wildlife division, and there's a parks division, and there's a fisheries division. And of course, I work in the fisheries division. And within each division, there's a number of programs. Um, and so I supervise the Diadromous Fish Program, which is 
really what we've been talking about, but I also supervise the Habitat Conservation and Enhancement Program, which seeks to protect, restore, and improve fish habitat uh, throughout the state. And a, a lot of it is when people propose to do certain developments, whether that's to build a new bridge across the stream or to dredge a marina or to uh, operate a hydroelectric uh, dam, they need permits. And they don't get those permits from our division, but they get them from other divisions, um, both in our agency and in federal agencies. And our program acts as technical advisors. We look at the application and say, okay, you want to build a bridge over, uh, let's say, the Saugatuck River. We know we need bridges. We're not here to stop you from building a bridge, but we're going to make sure that you build that bridge in an environmentally sensitive way to make sure that in doing so, you not only don't damage the habitat there, but you don't block the fish migrations. You don't, you don't have a construction project that scares all the fish away. And so we set conditions and, um, and advise people on how to do these developments in an appropriate way. And as you can sense from listening to me talk, these two programs that I supervise overlap a lot. Um, because when you're restoring diadromous fish, the key really is habitat. It's so much about, I mean, because this is not, you know, some small municipal pond in a park in which we just back up a truck full of trout, dump them in, let people fish for them for a couple of weeks until all the trout are done, and then we're done. We're trying to restore and maintain wild, sustained populations of native fish. And to do that, you need good habitat. In the case of the dams, we need to get them around the dams to access the good habitat. In the case of some of these things I've just been talking about, building new bridges and dredging marinas and um, other projects, you know, even applying herbicides to lakes, we want to make sure that the habitat that the fish can currently access is good, healthy, and productive. So it really, it's it, the, the especially in a heavily developed state like Connecticut, protecting the habitat is super important. If you go to Alaska, my gosh, there's fish habitats up there that you know, very few people even see. It's pristine, and it's at the top of its productivity. And then there's other states, not necessarily wilderness like Alaska, but they're large and, and have a lot of habitat. You know, I, I think of Maine, although Maine's got a lot of dams blocking it, but they've got a lot of habitat, good habitat. So in Connecticut, we're a small state. Um, we were heavily industrialized and developed. In the past, some of our habitat has been destroyed or at least degraded uh, through uh, mills and dams and factories, and in some cases, even um, residential development. So not only do we have to protect what's left, but we have to restore some of that that we lost. We have to bring it back into production um, so that it's, it, you know, I think there's a similarity with us in wildlife in that at the time of the Civil War, 
two-thirds of Connecticut was clear-cut. It was all in agricultural land. There was no woods to speak of. There's a little bit of woods in the northwest corner of the state, and there's a little bit of woods, I suppose, in the northeast part of the state, although not much up there. And, and therefore, we did not have deer or wild turkey or bears or bobcats or any of these other species. I mean, it, it was all farmland. After the Civil War and we opened up Western lands and a lot of Connecticut farmers relocated out West, the farms reverted. And guess what? The woods came back. Well, woods are habitat. And now all of this Connecticut woodland, now two thirds of Connecticut is wooded and full of really good wildlife habitat. And we all those species that I mentioned had disappeared from Connecticut, they're back. And so it's, it's sort of similar with fish. Um, we've, we lost a lot of fish habitat, and now we're bringing it back. And we're, we're restoring good habitat and getting the fish back into it. And that's, that's a formula for success. Yeah, so restoring the habitat, what are the key ingredients to make that happen? Well, I think that um, there's a few generalities that I can list. Um, when you get down to specific projects, it becomes very site-specific. But the generalities, of course, are you need clean water. So you need to make sure that um, all of the pollution is abated. One way or the other, we stop the pollution. You need abundant water. And in some watersheds, such as the Saugatuck, you've got a problem because you've got water supply reservoirs in the headwaters and they skim off a lot of water. In some wet years, it doesn't matter. There's enough water for everybody. In dry years, and I'm afraid we may be going into a dry year now, um, they're taking all the water they can get for drinking water and there's not much water coming down to the middle part of the river. Uh, so that's a concern. You need natural substrate. So in, in certain areas, like in the Hartford area, there's a few streams that they had problems with flooding and they channelized them and poured concrete trapezoidal channel. And the thing looks, doesn't look like a stream anymore. It, it, it looks like a sewer. And, you know, and so you have a concrete stream bed, nothing's happening there. No, no, that's not good for fish or other aquatic organisms. And so you need good riparian habitat. And by riparian, I mean not just in the stream to have the good sand, gravel, and cobbles, and boulders, but along the edges, you need um, healthy floodplain uh, and, and riparian vegetation. Um, you need to have it green so that there's shade. You, you need branches hanging over the streams. And, and then you need, uh, and by the way, that also um, provides cooling. One of the problems we have in Connecticut is that um, with reduced um, flow, we, we, our water gets low in oxygen, and with no shade on them, it gets warm, and warm water doesn't hold as much oxygen as cold water. So uh, having this riparian, natural riparian vegetation helps uh, the water quality, keep it cool and help oxygenate it. And then finally, as we've been talking, you need access to the habitat. So if there are dams, and by the way, there's over 4,000 dams in little old Connecticut. We are one of the most heavily, densely dammed states in the country. 
um, most rivers, you can't um, go very far before you encounter a dam. Um, where you're operating out of is one of the most heavily dammed areas, the Aspatuck River. If you go up the Aspatuck River uh, along Coley Town, or no, um, uh, um, well, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the street. It doesn't matter. There's a dam about every um, three or 400 feet. If you're standing on one dam, you look downstream, you can see another dam. And if you look upstream, you can see another dam. Um, so we can't solve this problem in all watersheds, but we can address it where we can. And so I've just given you a laundry list of, of, of things that are, is a good cookbook to follow when improving the habitat in most streams. But then you just have to take every site, every stream individually uh, when something is proposed, you have to get out there, you have to learn the facts, what's there now, what used to be there, what's still possible, um, and devise a, a restoration and protection plan that's appropriate for that stream. So it's safe to say that of the 4,000 dams in the state of Connecticut, the more that can be removed, the better for the, the habitat for the yeah. fish. Yeah, that, that's safe to say. You know, of the dams, when they were built, some of them, a few of them, dating back to the 1600s, not many, but a lot in the 1700s and 1800s and early part of the 1900s, they had a purpose. Sadly, they had an, a negative ecological impact, and it's too bad that that happened. But they did have a purpose. They they manufactured things. They created ice. They they provided power, um, and and so I guess we put up with it. But now, of these four thousand dams, most of them don't have a purpose. Um, there are a few flood control dams in the state, mostly built after the devastating nineteen fifty five floods. But those you can count almost on one hand. There are some hydroelectric generating uh, dams. There's, as we mentioned, there's some dams that hold back water for drinking water for our urban areas, particularly Fairfield County and New Haven and Hartford. Um, but then the rest of them, and you know, and what I just listed off probably only accounts for, oh, you know, 400 dams. And the rest of the 4,000 dams um, don't serve any particular purpose. Now, that's not to say they aren't valued. Some of the dam owners, some of these, these old mill dams, someone bought that property and they built a bunch of homes around the pond and now um, the pond is popular, mostly for aesthetic reasons. There is some recreation and um, there's some of them that are historic. And, and so we know that there are some dams that uh, people are going to want to maintain. They're not going to want to remove them. So for those, we propose building fishways. Not on all of them, but on the ones that are blocking important fish runs and we know would make a difference. Um, a fishway will restore, help restore fish runs, at least on selected species that can use the fishway. 
but they don't have all the other ecological values of a dam removal that we talked about of you know, restoring native habitat, free flowing streams, more oxygen, more shade, all of those good things. That doesn't happen when you build a fishway, but you do the best you can. But for the rest of the dams, we, it's, it's good to start talking to the dam owners and really challenging them and saying, do you really want this dam? Do you, by the way, you know you're paying lots of money to maintain this dam. You have to, you have to repair it. You have to keep it in good repair. You have to um, prepare emergency action plans. You your insurance company is going to charge you more for your policy if you've got a dam. And if that dam bursts and damages people's property downstairs, you're going to pay through the nose for those repairs. And so as people get educated about the dams, more and more people are saying, you know, maybe I don't want to maintain this dam. Maybe, maybe I should get rid of it or, or, or work with interested parties to have it removed. And um, the, um, the removal of these dams um, is, is a growing movement. It's, it's more and people more and more are getting interested in this. So it's um, a lot of it is education. People have misconceptions about dams. First of all, they think all these small dams provide flood protection, and they don't. They provide none because the water's already always spilling over the top of the dam, which means if the heavy rains come, there's no place to hold back floodwaters. They also think that if you remove a dam, there will be no water in some cases, which is false. In some cases, they think it'll be just stinky mud flats as what the pond would look like the day you drained it. And we know that's not true. We know vegetation springs up in this moist mud very, very quickly. So, so much of our job is to educate the public and slowly bring them along. We're not going to change everybody's mind. Uh, people are still, many people are still going to value their pond. But if we can remove some of these dams, we will have made a great contribution to restoring the vigor of our Connecticut streams. Now, what happens with uh, migrating fish that cannot get up and through the fishway? Well, it depends on the species. Um, all of these anadromous fish need to get their eggs out of salt water. They need to lay their eggs or broadcast their eggs, as the case may be, in fresh water. So when you build a dam really close to salt water, and a good example um, is the dam on the Mianus River in Greenwich. They actually built that dam downstream of the head of tide to, to uh, provide water for a power plant um, for the trolley. And so the fish came up the river and they couldn't get over the dam. And even if they spawned down below the dam, the eggs weren't going to survive because it was salt water. In other cases, um, you know, I'm thinking of the Connecticut River, for example. The first dam was north of Hartford. And so there was almost 30 miles, probably more, perhaps even 50 miles of fresh water below the first dam. And that's one of the reasons why the shad run on the Connecticut River managed to survive. The salmon didn't 
but the shad did. And that takes a little explanation. So salmon and shad spawn in different habitat. Salmon need to go to the very headwaters of the streams. They need to create a nest in rocky, shallow, rocky, flowing streams, like a trout stream um, that gets cold, very cold during the winter. So there were a few, couple of streams in Connecticut like that, like the Salmon River and the Farmington River, which flows into the Connecticut, um, that they could get up into that kind of habitat. But most of the good salmon habitat in the Connecticut River was up in, in a little bit in Massachusetts and a lot in New Hampshire and Vermont, way up there in the Green Mountains and White Mountains. So when you build a dam down in Connecticut and Massachusetts and block the salmon from getting up there, they were totally wiped out. Whereas the shad broadcast their eggs in, in freshwater tidal areas. Their spawning habitat starts in Glastonbury, Connecticut and extends all the way up into uh, Massachusetts. So even when we had a dam uh, in um, just north of Hartford, it didn't eliminate all of the habitat. It eliminated a lot of them and the shad run went down to very small numbers but there was still shad in the river spawning. And so when we remove these dams and build fishways and open it up, it's sort of like blowing on the embers of a campfire. You can bring it back to life and this run will, will um, resurrect itself. And so um, that's the answer to your question, whether you're talking about shad, salmon, alewives, blueback herring, sea lamprey, sturgeon, uh, all of these species, um, the ones that needed to go far upstream, we lost them mostly. Some of the fish, if we left them enough fresh water, they could hang on. Now, Steve, uh, the flip side is fish above the dam. Um, isn't there some truth to the fact that they might, if there's a, if there's a big pond that's a result of a dam, that water is more stationary, it could, the temperature could rise, and some fish will prefer to stay upstream and not, not go down into that warmer water. They want to stay up in the colder weather, like trout. Is that correct? Well, that's, that's true, because one of the things about dams is they change the habitat. So 400 years ago, we're looking at a, a stream in Connecticut. It's a trout stream. It's full of native brook trout. It's got branches hanging over the, the stream. It's keeping the water cool. This is really nice brook trout habitat. And the brook trout are abundant. But then someone decides that they're gonna build a, a grist mill uh, or a sawmill. And so they cut down all the trees, especially if it's gonna be a sawmill, because they're gonna, they not only use the logs maybe to build the dam, but they're gonna use, uh, saw the logs into timber and they build this dam and slow down the stream and so now this stream heats up it is no longer trout habitat now it's it's a war and, and so later on in our history after the civil war we start stocking non-native fish like largemouth bass and bluegills and catfish and because they're not native to connecticut those cold shaded trout streams that I just talked about are not good for them. But now these dammed rivers 
that now have sluggish water, it's warm and uh, more mud and lily pads, it's perfect for these non-native species. And so we've had this shift of, um, from native to non-native species in a lot of our streams. Now, we've reached a point where a lot of these non-native species have naturalized, they're now wild and self-sustaining, we're not going to turn back the hands of time. It's not like we're going to get rid of all the largemouth bass or all the channel catfish. But what we would like to do is draw more of a balance because again, we're not gonna get rid of all the dams anyway. So what would be good is if we could um, remove some of these dams and by doing so, restore some of this trout habitat um, and, you know, tip that balance a little more in favor of the native fish. We'll, we'll always have the non-native fish, but by doing what we're proposing, we'll get more of, of the trout and some of these stream um, uh, specialists, including fish that most people have never heard of, like long-nosed dace and um, fallfish or sculpin or tessellated darters. These are really cool, little native stream, Connecticut stream fish. It's not like you're gonna catch one on hook and line and you're not going to grill one on the barbecue, but they're really cool native fish. Lots of people like to go snorkeling in, I don't know, Hawaii or the Caribbean to look at all of these really cool little fish. They don't realize we have some of those same species, not the same species, but we have our own uh, community of cool little fish to, that live in our yeah. streams. So from a uh, fishing perspective, um, fishermen, fisherwomen, uh, anglers, anglers, the uh, uh, dam removal can enhance the fishing because the migrating fish can get further upstream and uh, the fish that are residing further upstream but don't necessarily want to come downstream for one reason or another, possibly warmer water they want to avoid, they, they might come down and uh, meet in the middle. So you could actually enhance that fishing ground. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to fishing, um, perhaps it's in the eyes of the beholder. When it comes to ecological benefits, I think we can elucidate those and document those fairly clearly. But um, there are a lot of different kinds of anglers in the state of Connecticut and what they like and, and don't like varies a lot. So if there's a a pond behind a dam that's full of largemouth bass and bluegills and they're largemouth bass and bluegill anglers, they're gonna like that. And if we take out the dam, they're not gonna like it, um, but the trout anglers will like it. So there's winners and losers in everything. But just as I was saying, um, there's 4,000 dams and there's largemouth bass and bluegills everywhere. And so there, by doing what we're doing, we are not gonna put the largemouth bass and bluegill anglers out of business, so to speak. They're, they're gonna have plenty of opportunities for high quality fishing in the state of Connecticut. But what we will do is increase the opportunities for those trout anglers. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, you're enhancing that habitat and conserving the environment yes. in a more, more natural way, the way it was before the, uh, at that time, purposeful dam was built. 100, 200, 300 years ago. Yeah. Yes. So, Steve, what about people that might want to pursue a career 
in fish and wildlife, environmental conservation, what advice would you give them? Well, I, I think the, the first, the, well, maybe not the first step, but the second step is education. The reason I say it that way is because um, most people who get into fish and wildlife are outdoors people. They're, they may be budding naturalists, young naturalists. And so developing that true love is important. Um, because the, the field is competitive and you know, you're not gonna make as much as your friend who goes to business school and works for a hedge fund. Um, but you, you do need to have a passion for it. But the education is important because I, if, if all you wanna do is work outside, work at, get a job with construction. But if you want to work as a conservationist, a biologist, uh, some sort of professional with fish and wildlife, you need an education. And so the first step certainly is college and um, getting a good solid undergraduate degree. Um, some schools like Massachusetts and Maine will provide an undergraduate degree in, in fish and wildlife. But you don't necessarily need that. You can have a, a get a good undergraduate degree in biology or environmental science because, frankly, in these days in this field, most people end up with a master's degree, and that's when you need to specialize. So even if in college you um, you know this kind of thing interests you, but you don't know if you want to study salmon, trout, bears woodcock, whatever, you know, wildlife, you, you get a general, good general degree in biology, gets work during the summers, find out what your real passion is. And then in graduate school, you, um, you specialize, you actually sort of narrow it down to the specialty because we are in a era of specialization. There's not a lot of people out there that you know, is, are working as an environmental scientist. They're working as a wildlife biologist or a forester or a fisheries biologist or, and even within those disciplines you specialize. So yeah, I'm a fisheries biologist, but I specialize in migratory fish. Somebody else specializes in, you know, bass or trout or, or education or something like that. So, so education's important. Um, but um, just maintaining the connection with the with the, the world around you is really important, not only to be effective at your job, but also to maintain your passion. And whatever you do, you're going to end up learning more than your fishing buddies, who, who when, when you were in high school, you and your fishing buddies thought you had all the answers. Then you go off to school and you go, ooh, maybe I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And so part of your job as a professional is not only dealing with your fishing buddies, but people like them and educating them so that they understand um, what needs to be done. And so even if you don't work in a government agency, there are really good non-governmental organizations, conservation groups, whether they be 
Save the Sound or the Nature Conservancy or Audubon, Connecticut, or, you know, the, the list is endless. They employ people who are working on some of these issues and educating the public and working closely with us in the government agencies uh, on a, um, a mutual mission. Yeah, uh, that's well said. And uh, that that's what we try to do here at Future Frogmen. We uh, are trying to uh, educate and build awareness about all water. All water is connected in our view, fresh water, salt water, uh, the the coastline, uh, it's it's all connected, and we we have marine biologists uh, and biology students, undergrad, master students, PhD students, um, and we have other people that are not studying science involved with us or in our audience because we want to spread the awareness so we can build appreciation and love for the natural environment. Because whether you're in business or politics or health or science or whatever, um, we all in our day-to-day life, as we go through life, we all can make a difference. We can impact policy. We can impact the way we we raise our children, uh, our friends and family. Spread the word, like you said, with your fishing buddies. I I like that analogy. Well, you know, I'll return the compliment. I thought you said it very well, too. I, I totally agree with what you just said. And, you know, the other thing you can talk about when you get into um, communities and talking to people of all walks of life and all ethnic groups and all all of these people, you don't know who you're talking to often. You're, there's someone in front of you. They're asking you good questions and, and you're talking to them. One of the things we've been talking a lot about dams and, you know, what can people do? Well, all of these 4,000 dams, well, most of these 4,000 dams have owners. Somebody owns these dams and some of them know why they own it. First Light Power knows why they own the Stevenson Dam. You know, they're generating electricity. But others, there's a lot of homeowners out there that bought their property not because of the dam. They bought their property because of the beautiful house and the property that it was on. They liked it, and so they bought it. And by the way, a dam came along with it. And so we have a lot of, I go out and give talks, and a lot of people will come up to me and say, you know, I own a dam, and you've raised issues here that I've never thought about. What can we do? What should I do? How, how, how do I go about learning more? And so my answer is always contact us. And us is a big group. Um, for the purposes of, of this podcast, I would say contact me. I'm, I am connected with lots of people, not just in my agency, but some of these NGOs, these conservation groups that are getting grants to remove dams. And by the way, if you've got migratory fish to the base of the dam we can probably get money to remove the dam you don't have to pay for it we 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 can find funds to to help with this and so um almost every time i go out and talk people come up to me and talk to me and so i'm offering that that um invitation to your listeners that if there's someone out there who owns a dam and would like to know more they 
they don't have to commit to removing the dam, but right away, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. We'll, we'll, we'll visit your, your property. We'll look at your dam. We'll come up with some options and, and let's see what happens. And so, um, you know, my contact, I'm, I work out of the old Lyme office in, um, in Connecticut, in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and I can be reached and I have an email address that I'm going to say slowly. And I'm going to encourage anybody who wishes to email me uh, and talk about their dam, they can. So my, my email starts off with my first and, and last name separated by a dot. It's Steve. And my last name after the dot is G E P as in Paul H A R D as in dog. And then it, after that, it's simple. It's at ct.gov G O V. So it's steve.gephard at ct.gov. And so if you want to talk, um, send me an email, tell me your town and your, the stream you live on. And um, we'll, we'll see if we can set up a conversation. Awesome. I hope you hear from many people because that would be a good thing for our Connecticut rivers. Well, even if we hear from a handful of people, you know, what I find is, is this is, a, this is a, 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 almost a gospel. It's spreading. And so one project brings on another one. We do one project in a town and somebody in the next town over sees that and says, wow, that's pretty neat. Can we do that in our town? And I said, let's talk. And sure enough, we find a dam in their town that needs to be addressed, and we do that. And then somebody sees that project, or the, or maybe so, that person has a friend in the next town over who also owns a dam, and and the word spreads. And and we have many many success stories, and and have established many good relationships with people who will vouch for us. And um, so. It's all good. It all spreads. It's all friendly, and it's all volunteer. This is not the government coming to town telling you you have to do something with your dam. This is a bunch of people who know about rivers and streams in Connecticut and and want to work voluntarily with landowners to do the right thing to improve these rivers and streams and and enhance our fish populations. Yeah, uh, education is key around dam removal, and, and you're a, a great resource for that with a, a ton of experience. I, I think one one uh, other topic related to that we should just circle back to, Steve, is you, you alluded to it earlier, but when these dams are removed, nature recovers nicely, rather quickly and, and very nicely, and uh, there can even be some planning done around that to, to make these uh, habitats quite quite beautiful. It's it, it, it's a, an end result. The end result is quite nice. Would you uh, agree? And can you comment on that? Well, yeah. I mean, this will be a long-winded answer to your question, but I'll get there. One of the problems with convincing somebody to remove a dam is sometimes they lack the imagination to know what it's going to be like before when it's all done. They All of their life, all they've known of is this dam in the pond. And when you say we're going to remove it, they just can't visualize what that's going to be. It's sort of like if you're, you're, look, you're house hunting and you come up to this sweet old gem of a house, but it's in bad shape. It needs paint badly and it's got a couple of dead trees. 
um, and you know the the garage roof is sagging, and they can't imagine what it, that house would look like when you fix it up. So one of the things we always talk about is uh, we show pictures before and after pictures of the other dam removals, and the and in all cases people people's reaction is, well, I never imagined it would be, I, I love the pond, it's beautiful, but this babbling brook that's now here is beautiful, it's wonderful, and there's more wildlife, I'm seeing more warblers, I'm seeing more osprey, um, and the plants, uh, we have all the native wildflowers growing there, and so you're right, in, in some cases, we don't do any planting, we don't do any vegetative restoration because we don't have to, we, we pull the dam out, we stabilize a little bit of the bank, and the seed bank in the stream bed, in the mud uh, along the edges of the stream, are just burst. Once, once those seeds are exposed to warmth and sunlight and oxygen, they, they may have been in that mud for 50 years, and they still germinate, and you have this beautiful lush carpet of native vegetation growing along the stream. And it's remarkable how quickly it happens. Now, there's been other cases where either we don't want to wait or the landowner has a vision for what they want the land. For example, we removed a dam um, on the east branch of the Eight Mile River in, Old, or in the town of Lyme um, called Ed Bill's Pond. And when we we eliminated that dam, we created a very broad floodplain that the grasses, we, we seeded it and the grasses took over. But the landowner had a vision of a floodplain forest. And so we bought nursery stock and we planted sycamores and we planted um, swamp oak and we planted uh, cottonwoods and we planted all of these um, native floodplain trees we had um, we got all sorts of volunteers out. We did it in a couple of days, but one day we must have had 20 people out there, and and all of the nursery stock was there. And you'd plant one tree, and you'd go back and get another one. And this this year, this is probably the fifth year since there, and it's gorgeous. It's incredible how the trees have grown, and they're providing shade, and it's just beautiful. And we have a an upstream neighbor of that project who um, resisted it, didn't, didn't support the dam removal, gave, gave us verbally a hard time. While we were removing the dam, he came by every day and grumbled about it. Now he drives by and he says, this is fantastic. I never dreamed it would be so good. And meanwhile, the trout are back in there. There's loads of trout. We have the nadromous fish spawning in there. So this is the kind of thing that why photos before and after and sort of testimonials of previous dam owners are really important because it helps open people's eyes to, to what can actually happen um, after the dam is gone and you've got this just beautiful natural area. Uh, Steve, that's a, a great analogy and I think a great uh, success story to end on. This, this has been really fascinating uh, listening to you, and uh, I know you've made an impact in the state of Connecticut, you and your team, and uh, we thank you for that, and uh, I thank you for joining us today. 
Well, it's been fun. And um, I, um, I'm always eager to introduce the subject of diadromous fish and fish habitat to a greater audience. Well, that's great. Uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime and, and talk further, but this, this was a great conversation and uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks very much. G good to talk to you. <laughs>